Blog Talk Radio.
wapate majirani au mpenzi au ujue watakupotesa
现你就现在这。济南的古边没人走，你没说说那满不要过，那满边的阿哥妈妈，也没想你就现在这。你没就说那么模样过，那么平地呀过妈妈，也没想你就想咋咋。济南那古边没人走，你没就说那么模样过，那么平地呀过妈妈。也没想你就想咋咋，济南那古边没人走，你没就说那么模样过。无论我们几种不安，变几大胆，爱安变几难道无不打光。我们都你安，你是变这样。你笑着跟米安的妈妈呀，你笑着不不沾边，连你那么脏。你抱着我不不怕为妈妈，不然我们几种不安变几大胆。I am变几难道，我不沾脏。我们都你安，你是变这样。你笑着跟米安的妈妈呀。
matra mengi na wivu wako mwingi Yote hayo wanidanganya mimi Nimefumilia na bado ya naziji Niko tayari kukorosu wende Nitaia nikaio tarata yako Tambu nyingi huwa mimisipendi
What a great party. What a great music. See them listen. See them dance when you play for our friends. Oh, what a beautiful evening. The one show you must see.
Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes the history out of the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director Welcome back. Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer, Director of the Pacifica Radio Archives. And welcome to From the Vault, our weekly series that takes the history out of the oldest and largest collection of public radio programming in the United States and puts it back on the radio. This week we offer what may be one of the most important programs in our vast collection of 55,000 recordings. When I heard President Barack Obama acknowledge Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall in his 2013 inaugural speech, he made history with this statement honoring those who struggled during those flashpoint events. As soon as I could, I looked in our archives public access database from my iPhone and found a program called The Second Battle of Selma, produced by the legendary Dale Miner. Miner, a journalist who had already covered the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings in 1960 and the 1963 March in Birmingham, Alabama, had an incredible way of bringing the dramatic events into the listener's home and giving them the experience of being there, rather than a post-event detached sanitized report. Here in the Second Battle of Selma, Alabama, Dale Miner brings the march from Selma to Montgomery to the Pacifica listeners in Berkeley, Los Angeles, and New York. This was recorded between March 9th and 24th, following what is now known as Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1965, and was broadcast on March 26th, 1965, making it incredibly immediate to the subscribing members of KPFA, KPFK, and WBAI, Pacifica. One must make note that in 1965 there was no NPR, no PBS, and certainly no commercial media network that would dare air a program such as the one you're about to hear. There was no Corporation for Public Broadcasting to fund radio documentaries, only Pacifica Radio. We offer the first 60 minutes of this 90-minute treasure from the Pacifica Radio archives. If you would like to hear the entire program, you can get a copy on CD by visiting us online at fromthevaultradio.org or calling us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. And now for the first time in decades, we are proud to present Dale Miner and the Second Battle of Selma as presented by Pacifica Radio on March 26, 1965. The First Battle of Selma occurred on April 2, 1865, when Union troops left a burning devastation of what was then a principal arsenal and arms manufacturing center of the Confederacy. In the spring of 1963, while one of Selma's sons, T. Eugene, better known as Bull Connor, commanded fire hoses and police dogs during the siege of Birmingham, field workers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began to prepare Selma for its second entrance on the stage of American history. Two years later, after eight weeks of skirmishing and preparation, another army of the North descended on this city of 28,000 on the Alabama River, an army very different in character from the first a nonviolent army, whose weapons were the mass media and the moral consciousness of the nation, 
whose troops were mixed black and white, northerners and southerners, and whose vanguard was composed of ministers, priests, and nuns from every corner of the United States. A nonviolent army, yes, but lest the hundred-year-old origins of this battle be missed, an army ultimately flanked by bayonets and backed up by the military might of the United States. On March 7, 1965, 26 days less than a century after Union troops first broke through the town's defenses, the Second Battle of Selma was fully and irrevocably joined. Within a week, the issue was clear. The power of the Union had triumphed again, and two weeks from the day it began came the breakthrough, when Dr. Martin Luther King led an army numbered at 5,000 and growing each day over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and on its way to Montgomery, 50 miles away a trek which many began to liken to Gandhi's march to the sea, but which white Alabama, more in keeping with our analogy, thought more like the seaward progress of Sherman's army. There is little question but that the march on Montgomery, whose numbers swelled to 25,000 on the final day, represents a dramatic victory for the Southern Civil Rights Movement after ten weeks of constant struggle and effort. Indicators of the significance of that victory are many, from the near certainty of a new voting law, which could have a more profound effect in the South than the entire 1964 Civil Rights Act, to the active participation of Catholic clergy, nuns, and official church representatives in the demonstrations, to the President of the United States saying, we shall overcome, to Congress and a national TV audience. But victory in the Second Battle of Selma was also the fruit of a decade of struggle in the South and across the nation, the rewards of which might be measured by the many significant changes in the state of Alabama since Birmingham, changes reflected in newspaper attitudes and policies, in the increasing activity of the white moderates, dramatically in the presence of from 50 to 100 members of the Committee of Concerned White Citizens from several Alabama cities and towns who marched and demonstrated alone and with a larger procession on Tuesday, March 9, and in the march on Montgomery itself. A concentrated campaign had been waged in Selma and its environs since the first of the year, but only in the two weeks preceding the Montgomery trek did it become a battleground for forces and issues of such magnitude, and that, whatever they may say about outside agitators, the local powers that be pulled down upon their own heads. And the movement strategy was predicated on their doing so. Satisfying as victory celebrations are, it is the process of battle, the decisions and actions of the combatants, the stresses and strains, strengths and weaknesses in the opposing armies that remain of the greatest interest. In these respect, the Second Battle of Selma was as enlightening as it was significant. Remember that panic is the most important weapon that our enemies have. If they disperse us into a wild mob, we are not fulfilling our function. We cannot panic. Now, they may use tear gas. Tear gas is not a dangerous gas. This is it Dr. Boland of the Medical Committee for Human Rights, instructing participants in the march attempted on Tuesday, March 9th. To tear, it may make you momentarily blind, and that's where the gas works. When you become momentarily blind, if you do not know it, you may become panic-stricken. Do not become panic-stricken. This is momentary. It will not last. Reach to the right or the left for your neighbor, your friend, your brother, who will help you and lead you out of the gas. 
Don't go running around wildly. Walk into the gas, into the wind, so that the wind will blow the gas out of your eyes. Do not rub your eyes. Do not bandage your eyes. We have ambulances, doctors, and nurses available to give you first aid. Don't panic. If you get beaten by billy clubs and you get hit on the head, if you are unconscious, make sure somebody stays with you. Make sure you... Let's put it this way. If you see somebody fall unconscious, stay with them because an unconscious person may revive quickly and forget that they were struck on the head and a few hours later there is trouble. We must know of all people who have been unconscious. If a bone is broken, do not move the person. Summon our first aid people. We are there, we will be there, and we will continue to be there from here to Montgomery or wherever we're going. We will be there with you. before Dr. Boland instructed this audience. On the bloody Sunday of March 7th, Alabama state troopers and Dallas County Sheriff's deputies used clubs, horses, tear and nausea gas, and smoke bombs to drive Negro marchers, beginning their first attempt to march on Montgomery, back across the Pettus Bridge and through the town to the Negro Quarter, clubbing them all the way. The result was 57 injured, 17 of those hospitalized, at an outraged focus of national attention that nearly pushed Vietnam off the front pages. In a matter of hours, Selma had escalated from a skirmish to a battle of strategic significance. In Atlanta, where he heard the news, Martin Luther King, who had been personally leading the Selma campaign, announced a second try would be made Tuesday and called on clergymen and other concerned citizens across the nation to travel to Selma to lend the support of their presence. Tuesday afternoon, as hundreds from other parts of the country answered his call and prepared to face the troopers who had beaten back Sunday's march, and amid rumors that it might be called off, King announced his final decision to hold the march in spite of a federal court restraining order issued earlier in the day. I say to you this afternoon that I have no alternative but to lead a march from this spot in an attempt to carry our grievances to the seat of government in the state of Alabama, I have no alternative on the basis of conscience. I have no alternative on the basis of morality. And I ask you to join me today. I ask you to join with me as we move on. And I must say to you that there comes a time when you must make a difficult decision. I haven't had much sleep over the night. Maybe an hour or two, and all morning I've been agonizing. And I would not be honest with you if I did not tell you that it was a painful and difficult decision. 
The agonizing began on Monday when the civil rights leaders learned that federal judge Johnson in Montgomery would issue the restraining order. The rumor of cancellation had apparently originated Monday night with the leadership itself before the results of King's call had begun to show. In the time intervening before the final decision was made and the procession began, Leroy Collins, head of the Federal Community Relations Service, flew to Selma and began a series of last-ditch efforts to mediate what seemed an imminent collision between marchers and troopers, and his efforts bore fruit. Though few of the marchers were aware of it, a script which avoided a clash and obviated Judge Johnson's restraining order had been written and tacitly agreed to by both sides, a fact which was to cause some bitterness and friction within the movement leadership. But on Tuesday afternoon, before the march began, little of this was known. And I've made my choice this afternoon. I've got to march. Come what may, I do not know what lies ahead for. Tell it, tell it, tell it. There may be some beatings ahead. Yeah. There may be some jailings ahead. Well. There may be some tear gas ahead. Yeah. I say to you this afternoon that I would rather die on the highways of Alabama than make a butchery of my conscience. Yes, The procession began moving about 3 p.m., its number estimated at 2,000, stopping at the foot of Pettus Bridge to hear a federal marshal read the restraining order to them. I would like to read to you an order issued by Judge Johnson. It says in part, it is well ordered to judge the decree of this court. Did I make way? None of the members of their class and those active in the pursuit of them be and each is hereby enjoined and restrained from attempting to march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama until this court can have a reasonable opportunity to make a judicial determination as to the prospective rights of the parties in this case. It is put on the judge to treat this court to communicate if the motion is cleared for a preliminary injunction, B and C is hereby set for a hearing to commence at 9 a.m. Thursday, March 11, 1965. Done this 9th day of March, 1963. Frank M. Johnson, Jr., United States District. Well, we are aware of the morning. I'm in no way I am in no way going to interfere with your move. I was instructed by Judge Johnson to read the order to you. Thank you. Thank you. May we move on? Excuse me, you people make room right And then they continued over the bridge to the far side of the Alabama River, where the troopers awaited them. Stand where you are. This march will not continue. 
the march has stopped perhaps 30 feet from the line of state troopers who are cordoning off both sides of this divided highway. King now is speaking to the troopers, to their head. It's not possible to pick up what he's saying from this point. This march will not continue. It's not conducive to the man on the, the bullhorn is Major John Cloud, leader of the trooper detachment, who also commanded the operation on Bloody way. Sunday. So, as of now, it will not continue. Luther King now replies, but his reply is drowned out by the jets overhead. You can have your prayer and then return to your church if you so desire. procession turned, as agreed, and made its way back by the same route to its starting place at Brown's AME Chapel on Sylvan Street. Back at the church, King answered reporters' questions. One of the strongest judges in the South, and uh, I'm sure he came to this decision on the basis of good faith and honesty. Pardon me. On the other hand, he felt that with all of these people that have responded to our call from all over the nation... Uh, and because uh, we had a basic constitutional right to do this, that uh, this was an uh, unjust injunction, and consequently we made the decision to go on. This doesn't mean that we have lost respect for the federal courts. It simply means that we had a decision to make in this specific instance, and this is the particular instance rather than a general conclusion that we've reached. Dr. King, you, did you say you had decided in a tragedy meeting before you got there that if the way was clear to hold your meeting and come back? 
Yes. In other words, you decided that if you got that far, that you would not go on to Montgomery today. That's right. That is, if they were there, we made it clear that uh, if we could move on today, we would. But if they formed the human line and told us that we couldn't go... What about when they moved out from in front of you? Well, we had already asked them to let us go on, and they said we could not. You see, he had already said that you cannot go beyond this point. I said, well, can we pray and have some songs? And he said, all right, you can do that and then return to the church. But we had already made the decision last night. Dr. King, did you make this clear at that time out there, or did they know about this before you arrived at at that point? Well, now, they may have known it, uh, because I told the Attorney General in no uncertain terms, and I told Governor Collins that we had to march and that we had to at least get to the point of the brutality on Sunday and stand up to the state troopers that we couldn't retreat. So they may have gotten the word over to them. This is a real possibility. You made your point then. Do you know what? Do you know whether Governor Collins, when he handed you this slip of paper with a route on it, do you know whether he had, prior to that time, talked to uh, Jim Park and Colonel Lingo? Well, I think he probably did, because when he handed me the paper, uh, he said he thought things would work out, but he didn't go into detail. He had, the possibility he had cleared that route with them before he gave it to you, then? Yes, that's a real possibility. Thank you, gentlemen. Dr. King has a meeting inside. And then from the church steps, he spoke to the crowd of marchers around him. I think I can say without fear of successful contradiction. We have here today the greatest demonstration for freedom, the greatest confrontation we've had in the South by the thousands, and if my eyes are serving me right, I would say around 4,000 of us were able to do something in Selma today that we've never been able to do before. Last night and this morning, as we grappled with the problems that we face here, we made a decision. First, we decided that we would have to march today, that we had a sort of divine imperative facing us, and that we had to go through with it, come what may. We decided that at least we had to move to the point where the brutality took place Sunday. We decided that we had to stand up and confront the state troopers who committed this police brutality. Now we also decided along with that that in accord with our nonviolent spirit, the nonviolent movement that we would not seek to break through a line of state troopers that assembled there, but we made it clear that we had to march. Today I'm proud to say that we did march, we did reach that point, and we stayed on the highway of the state of Alabama, and we had a prayer service and a freedom rally. This has never happened before. 
Now, as you know, we have many things to do and we have many challenging days ahead. You are listening to a 1965 Pacifica Radio original documentary on the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, March 9th through the 24th, 1965. We present the first 60 minutes of the 90-minute program. If you would like to hear the program in its entirety, you can get a copy on CD by visiting us online at fromthevaultradio.org or calling us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. And now back to the program broadcast to Pacifica Radio subscriber listeners on March 26, 1965. A visibly angry James Foreman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee spoke to the group in rather different tones. Just a moment. Now, we have to raise in our minds why it is that people got beaten Sunday when they crossed that bridge. Why is it that the state troopers put tear gas on people? See, when they said, you know, this march is dispersed and then go back, we have to find out why is it that tear gas was used Sunday? Why were horses run over people? Why did people get hit with billy clubs? Why that didn't happen today? These are fundamental questions that we have to raise within our minds. I'm very sorry, you know, I can speculate on a lot of things. Now, I'm wondering if the fact that just because there were a lot of white people down here today, that this happened. Now, if this is the case, and I think, you know, I'm certainly happy to see all the people that came down, but if this is the case, then what does this say about this country? What happens, you see, if just the Negroes from now, right now, decided to go back across that bridge, what would happen to them? Just Negroes. See, what would happen to them? Now, these are, just a moment now, please don't, I don't want anybody tapping me on my shoulders and everything else. I got something I want to say. See, now these are questions that we have to raise within our minds. And then when we go home tonight, we have to raise it. Now, you see, I'm not at all apologetic because, as I said, I paid my dues in self. And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee has paid its dues here. And there's going to be perhaps some injunction against Sheriff Clark around the whole question of voting. But you have got to raise with yourself, why is it that Jose Williams and John Lewis and your sister and your brother got whipped Sunday? And nothing happened today. These are the questions that you must raise in your mind. These are the questions that you must discuss with your neighbor. Because fundamentally, you see, I think that the federal government is involved in all of this. See? So that that says then that a thousand or so white people representing high church officials come into Selma, Alabama. Mrs. Douglas who incidentally is the wife of my senator. I used to live in Illinois. All right, so she comes down. Okay, but what about Susie Jones who walks up to that line? What happens to Susie Jones? And what happened to the woman over there at the hospital, at the Don Hospital? That's it, I recall it. The women that got beat over there done by people who were in the posse of Sheriff Jim Clark. 
And what did the federal government do then? And what did the federal government do on October 7th, 1963, at the first Freedom Day in Selma? The first Freedom Day when the concept of Freedom Days originated right here in Selma, Alabama. When there were some 400 people lined up at the courthouse and Sheriff Clark wouldn't allow us to take sandwiches across the street. And Mrs. Boyington walked across and Chico Neblet was beat. Now, what is the difference? That's what you have to ask yourself. Is it, do we, are we free just because there's a whole lot of thousand people down and then we're permitted to do something and then we turn around and come back? What happens if you decide to walk to Montgomery, if you go down to the courthouse without Mrs. Douglas or without Bishop Lord, and I am not at all talking against him, but these are the questions that you have to raise. The friction was not quite out in the open, but its vibrations were being felt. That night at a mass meeting in the AME church, Fred Shuttlesworth of Birmingham fame and one of King's own lieutenants seemed to echo Foreman's theme, at least superficially. It is ours to say this day the same as it was when the clanking of the British Army was heard on the Boston Plains. We must say, give us liberty or give us death. Yes, sir. Now, we are going... We are going to the courthouse tomorrow, and uh, we're going to remind Brother Jim that Al acted pretty good today. But we also should remind Brother Clark that if they beat any heads on the courthouse tomorrow, they're going to have to beat some more in the streets tomorrow night because we're going to march night and day until we get this thing over. Now, of course, Brother Clark is bothered. Now, I doubt if he's going to get any sleep tonight. Of course, there were times, I understand, he could have gotten some sleep and didn't. When, we, when they, you were marching in, in Marion the other week, now, Marion is not in Dallas County. What in the world was Jim Clark doing down there teaming up with Al Lingo? Beating heads. So we're going to say to him tomorrow, you lost some of the sleep you ought to have. None of us going to sleep. We're going to stay woke until we get our rights. <laughs> but the chief spot in this whole black belt is a certain spot about 46 miles from here. And uh, there is a beautiful state capitol building, the dome of which can be seen glittering for miles and miles around. And you see, I don't know whether we'll be able to walk all the way. I don't know, Mark. We'll still have to work that out, won't we? Yeah. But you see, it is our job to do a little acting over there. Now, I don't know what the document will say. I'm not sure what it will say. I don't even have to read it myself. I want Dr. King to read it. But I want to be there so that if his hands tremble, I want to be like Moses said, stand and hold his hand, that we is strong, we mean what we say. Shuttlesworth also had bad news to tell. Earlier that evening, James Reeb, a young Unitarian minister from Boston, was beaten with two other white ministers by four white men as the trio left a Negro cafe several blocks from the church. Reeb was able to walk back 
but soon collapsed and was taken in an ambulance to University Hospital in Birmingham, 90 miles away. Now I have uh, another announcement to make that is uh, not a delightful announcement. And that is that we have just uh, received word. Thank you. That uh, our young ministerial friend who was beaten up a while ago is still in the hospital and in a critical condition. In fact, uh, he's in a coma. This says to us that despite the fact that some bad boys acted fairly nice today, that ours is still a violent country. That despite the fact that we proclaim ourselves as a Christian nation and indeed the spiritual leader of the world, America still has too much violence in its borders. Wednesday morning saw the friction within the Selma movement coming to the surface. The compromise worked out between leaders of the march Tuesday and state and county authorities was engineered with heavy pressure from Washington to avoid a clash by allowing both sides to step back from collision and still save face. But to some of the younger demonstrators, Martin Luther King had saved less face than the troopers. The dissidents pointed with bitterness to a newspaper story Wednesday that indicated the troopers were under orders not to resist the procession if it insisted on continuing past the agreed-upon line. Others contended that the story was a plant or leak from the office of Al Lingo, Alabama's public safety commissioner. But the story had already had its effect, and Wednesday morning, Selma's Negro student group was demanding action. Put the lights out. That's just, the best. Just hey, you want this? I, I don't know why. <laughs> you don't want to turn around. Okay, just a minute. What do you propose to do? Let's see hands from somebody. Yeah. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Okay. Yeah. Kneel down. Have a mask. Have a mask where you stop. What's that? Let them drag you out. While King and Abernathy prepared for federal court hearings in Montgomery, the problem of the young dissidents was left to two extremely able officers of the Freedom Army, Andy Young, speaking here, King's second in command, and James Bevel, SCLC's director for the Alabama Project, both of whom are hugely popular with young people. They accomplished their task successfully, but not easily, and not by any means all at once. We have to have some reason for doing anything that we do. Now, I would say that there ought to be some reason for stopping there. If we are stopped, say, right here at the corner, I don't see any reason to have a mass meeting there. Now, listen to me. The reason we would stop, if they stop us downtown and try to stop us, then I'd say, okay, let's have a mass meeting because there, the whole purpose of a demonstration is the witness to the truth. But you have to be witnessing to somebody. 
See? Now, if we stop right out here in front of the church and sit down, we're really not doing any more than we're doing right now. We're sitting down witnessing to ourselves. It might make us feel good, see, uh, just to sit there, but uh, frankly, I'm, now, you know, if you want to do it, it's okay. But I, I can't see it right now. Uh, what's that? Until they move out of the way. Sit down until they move out of the way. Now that means that, but the real situation here is they don't have to move in the Negro community. There's no danger. They don't have to move us. They can just sit here, and we can sit here all night or the next two or three days. Now we've done that in some places, uh, and uh, that may be something you'd want to consider. Yeah. I need some help. Huh? I'll let Bevel deal with it. Thank you very much. Yes, keep this in mind. We are not trying to beat the hell out of Jim Clark. That's not our program. We have to understand. We're not after Jim Clark. We have to understand that. We are not after Mr. Baker. In America, a bad political situation has developed because Negroes can't vote. And we have to understand that. The man was, the minister was hit last night over his head because a bad situation has developed and created a lot of hate in the white community. It's unsafe for a white man to come and preach and go into a Negro restaurant and he get beat over the head because law enforcement is broken down and because there's a lot of frustration in, in the white community. Now we are trying to address ourselves to that, and in order to address ourselves to that, we accept suffering, and we commit ourselves to being truthful and loving. Now our demonstrations <coughs> should do several things. One is to speak to the Negro community and the white community, and then the broad American community. That's our job, to speak, to make the people focus their consciousness into their consciousness the problem. Now, we assume that the people haven't been thinking about it, that you, the people who are here now, last year and year before, you hadn't really thought about it. You hadn't really sat down and decided or tried to go through the creation of Harlem or Chicago. You, you, really, you really never sat down to think about the suffering of people in the community when they can't vote. Now, in order for that situation to be eliminated, whether I like middle class white people or not, middle class white people are going to have to focus their consciousness on the problem before it's going to be eliminated in America now. Now, you in the, the dilemma that I've had all the time, what do you do? Now, some Negroes have been picking up bottles, throwing. Some Negroes have been spitting white folks' food when they cook for them. <laughs> People have been doing all kinds of things. Some Negroes have been getting drunk, coming home, beating their wives. But here we are, asking for the right to express a grievance, and there the police standing down saying, no, no. Not only are we not going to give you your rights, we're not going to even allow you to say you don't have them. And that's the dilemma for Negroes, especially when we have no money, when we have no political power and very little education. That's the problem. What do we do? And so a lot of times 
We may be slow in terms of people say, why don't you get the demonstrations out on time? And sometimes we don't because we are agonizing over the whole question of how can we best communicate. And this is what some people don't quite understand. I think a lot of us need to understand how can we best communicate? How can we best communicate our concerns for our community? How can we best communicate so the nation will see the problems? And Jim Clark can see the problems. And these are the problems that we have in terms of making decisions. And this is why we stay up many times at night. Because if it's a simple problem on how to humiliate Wallace, we know how to do that. But when, it, when you're saying, in light of all the frustrations in Wallace's background, how do you communicate? How do you get through to this man? It becomes a very difficult task. And uh, this is some of the dilemma that we're in most of the time. Now, um, let me, let me explain something. We work in teams, basically, because the pressure is so great until we, I get to a point where I don't know, and then I have to call back uh, on Andy, who about at this time should have decided what we're going to do. Now we have another fella. After two frustrated attempts to march to the courthouse that same day, the controversy over tactics continued. Well, you are... And whether if you are ready to face it or not, the movement is dying down. The movement is dying down because we're being stopped too often. The, the, it's, I think it's about time we move because the longer it takes, the more Negroes are going to be killed. And as long as we don't do anything about it, they're going to keep on being killed. And there's something we can do about it. We can march and protest. And there's no need of talking about we can put it off to, until tomorrow, because tomorrow won't wait. There's something that we got to do today. And to prove that we are men and citizens and that we are a Negro race that are proud of ourselves, we got to face the posse no matter what happens. We got to show them... We gotta show them that the Selma move is not gonna die down because of a few billy clubs. It's not gonna die down because a few people get hit. It's not gonna die down because of hurt feelings. Now, everybody that are visitors here, if I'm right, you came to see what you could do to help the people in Selma, right? What I want to say now, most important, right now, today we don't need financial purposes. We don't need sympathizers. We need somebody that's going to march with us. The reply is made once again by Andy Young. Now, while you all were engaged in confronting the police down here at the corner, there was another demonstration in process. We pulled about, I guess, almost 200 people out of the line. We had to do it without you realizing it because we didn't want the police to realize it too. And everything we do in here ordinarily is taped and recorded. The purpose of this group was while you all had the police detached down there, 
was to filter through the alleys and lanes down this way, back around the church and all down Water Avenue to get down to the courthouse to have a demonstration. And we had a demonstration at the courthouse. Now, in order to get change through Congress, we need to organize this tremendous force of public opinion, which we have here. Right. The reason all these good people came down, they, they got jobs, they got families, they stopped what they were doing to come down here to witness with us to help us change. Now, the purpose of this morning's demonstration down there was to demonstrate to this nation that some 30 states were represented here on the side of Negroes voting. If you get 30 states willing to ratify a constitutional amendment, uh, you need 38, but you get 30, you can get the other eight, see? That if you get 30 states willing to move on the question of voting rights for Negroes, you're pretty sure of getting a voting bill through Congress. Now, what we do, therefore, our main role is to keep public opinion and the moral sentiment of this nation with us. Now, we can do that just by going about our business peacefully. Now, we almost had it today. Those couple of hundred of us that went down were walking, just walking around the block. And it's something, now, you may not think this is a demonstration, but when a Negro... You know, a man walks down the street holding hands with a white woman in Selma, Alabama. It's a demonstration. <laughs> and there were people in integrated groups that just quietly walked around the courthouse. Just quietly walked around. Now, we had intended to stop at the courthouse steps. But by the time we got there, the posse had so ringed the courthouse that it would have just been really suicide to try to go on across there. And frankly, I have to measure what I'm going to get for what I give. I'm not going to pay a man $1,000 for a ham sandwich. If all I got to get is a ham sandwich, I'm not going to give him but 50 cents. See? Now, if all I'm going to get is a voting bill, and right now it looks like that's about all we're going to get in a court case against Jim Clark, I have to ask myself, how many nuts on my head is it worth to get a voting bill? See, now I decided, I don't know about you, but I decided that there had been enough knots in Marion, Alabama, there had been enough knots across that bridge, and there's one man dead and one man dying, and that's enough to pay for a voting bill. That morning, about 300 demonstrators, including a number of ministers who had remained in Selma, and six Catholic nuns from St. Louis, attempted to march from Brown's Chapel to the courthouse. They did not get there, and it was clear before the demonstration began that they really didn't expect to. I think we have a lot more power in this demonstration to speak to the nation than we ordinarily have when we are just here by ourselves. So... What I'm proposing for our demonstration today is that we march out of the church together. That we march as far as we can. If we can march to the courthouse, fine. We march down there and stop. If we can march to the couple of blocks away, fine. We march down there and stop. But now what we do when we stop 
is we testify. And I would like to kind of call the roll for a minute. Now, we can't do every, get everything in everybody, but I think it would, be necess- it would be good because we need to realize that we're not only speaking to Commissioner Baker and Jim Clark, we're speaking to the millions of people that are informed of what we're doing through the, the television um, and newspapers and radio stations who are covering our demonstration. So I propose that we march as far as we can march. When we're stopped, that we begin to preach to whoever stops us, knowing that you're preaching to the nation. And I'd suggest in your preaching that you'd say in one minute why you're here and what it is you're protesting. And I'd suggest that we now get representatives. We can't hear everybody. The group led by the local SCLC leader, the Reverend L.L. Anderson, was stopped half a block from the church by Selma's Public Safety Commissioner, Wilson Baker, and Mayor Joe Smitherman, backed up by a line of city police. Reverend Anderson, you cannot march today. You have been informed that we have an order, we issued this order, you have informed of it, there will be no marches in Selma. You will be stopped if you attempt to march. You know this. You will not march today. We, uh, Your Honor, Mr. Smitherman, the Honorable Mayor of our city, we, uh, want, and the Honorable Chief Director of Public Safety, we are here not to rebel your orders, We are asking only, and we feel that we are not asking too much, that you would permit us to march to our courthouse, that we feel that's paid for by our firms, and that we need not be registered voters to be citizens, but we do want to become registered voters because we think it's our God-given rights under the Constitution of the United States of America. You have had opportunity after opportunity to go to the courthouse in peaceful demonstration. We have enforced the laws impartially. It's gotten to the point we cannot allow any more demonstrations. It's in the welfare and the interest of this city. You have this order. It has been put out. You understand it. I expect it to be obeyed. You can stay here and make as many statements as you want, but I expect this order to be obeyed. We have many persons that we would like to state their position. Uh, they would like to make a brief statement. Sister Antonia of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a sister of St. Mary. Uh, she is a Negro, a member of the Negro race. I am a Negro, That's and right. I'm very proud of it. I feel it a privilege to be here today. Uh, my name, as they have said, is Sister Mary Antonia. I'm from St. Louis, in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm stationed at St. Mary's Infirmary. Uh, the Sisters of St. Mary, through my superiors, uh, have sponsored my uh, coming to... And as television Dallas, cameras were, uh, some 30 individuals stepped forward to make more or less brief personal statements, addressed really to the television audience more than the mayor, who had turned his back and walked away. Mr. Truman Morrison from Michigan. Did you come? Yes. Oh, tell something more about him. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm from uh, Edgewood United Church in East Lansing. I'm here from Michigan because I believe that millions of Americans are here in spirit with the uh, people of Selma 
uh, as they seek to uh, bear the brunt of the struggle for civil rights and full democracy in this country. Mr. Morris Samuel of California. I am Father Samuel from the Parish Beach, Los Angeles here. Father, Father we are here to help support and hold up the hands of the great prophets like Martin Luther King, members of SNCC, to protest the things that have been going on in Selma. And we are here because this is where Christ is and being witnessed to in this city. God bless you. God bless you. Now, I, am doc I am Dr. Homer Jack from the Unitarian Universalist Association. I'm here representing Massachusetts. I represent the spirit of the Boston Tea Party, the first direct action in our country. I represent the spirit of David Thoreau, who gave so much insight to Gandhi, and we're experiencing a Gandhi uh, march today. I represent the spirit, most important, of James Reeve, a fallen comrade who lies near death uh, at this very moment in the University Hospital of Birmingham. James Re uh, My name is Robert Albritton. I'm the Presbyterian University pastor at the University of Virginia. And I come here with a Roman Catholic priest, Father William Stickle, and several University of Virginia students who are all from the state of Virginia, and one of them from Tennessee, to join with the Negro people here in Selma on behalf of hopefully thousands of white Southerners who join with us in sympathy and in feeling for this cause. After the statements, the demonstration turned back to the church. It was at this point that the group Andy Young referred to before slipped away by twos and threes to assemble a brief demonstration at the courthouse. But at the same time, about 200 youngsters had decided on a march of their own and damned the torpedoes. They moved in the opposite direction down Sylvan Street, where as yet no police barricade existed, and turned on Jeff Davis Avenue toward the downtown area. They were stopped after another block by Commissioner Baker, who had raced the length of the block with a contingent of state troopers, arriving just barely in time to head them off. Even then, the youngsters were reluctant to retreat.
Watch, you're going to have to go back to the church one way or the other. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it all the way. All right, let's get back to the church. Finally persuaded by the pressure of the police line and a group of ministers, they turned back into Sylvan Street. There at the intersection occurred one of the many striking tableaus of the week. Some twenty dark-coated, high-collared ministers and priests locked arms in a line from sidewalk to sidewalk, with the children behind them, facing a parallel formation of twice that many blue-uniformed helmeted troopers. Public Safety Commissioner Wilson Baker is one of the principal and certainly one of the most interesting actors in this drama we've chosen to call the Battle of Selma. And while the movement had its internal problems, the, the dilemmas besetting Wilson Baker proved that compared with the problems of the racist power structure, the movement's troubles were minor indeed. I'm a segregationist, the New York Times quoted him, but if I were a nigger, I'd be doing just what they're doing. Alone among city and state officials, Baker commands respect, if not universal liking, from most of the militant Selma Negroes, and the corresponding displeasure and even contempt of the more rabid racists, Sheriff James Clark, chief among them. He has even begun to lose the support of some of Selma's white moderates who feel things have been allowed to go too far. And we have to leave our program there for today. If you would like to hear the entire 90-minute program, The Second Battle of Selma, visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org to get your own CD copy, or you can call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. You can search our collection at pacificaradioarchives.org, where you can also make a donation online to help restore more programs like the one you just heard. A special thanks to Dale Miner, who made radio history with this incredible documentary. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, supported by Pacifica listeners, the Pacifica stations, and the foundation, and funded in part by grants and partnerships like the Internet Archive at archive.org and University of California Berkeley Moffett Library. I'm Brian DeShazer. Thanks for keeping our history alive. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was a documentary from 1965 on uh, the Selma voting rights campaign that unfolded in January, February, and March of 1965 uh, involving the SCLC as well as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which had been active in Selma 
for uh, the previous uh, three years. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. The lead story uh, deals with the situation in Somalia. Police said earlier today that eight people were killed in a roadside bomb claimed by al-Shabaab in central Somalia, where a major offensive is underway to retake territory from the jihadists. The attack occurred on Saturday afternoon in Bulo Burdi, a city in the Huron district uh, where government forces and clan militia have been battling the al-Qaeda-linked insurgents since the middle of last year. The bomber detonated a car laden with explosives near an administrative building, said Abdullahi Mahmoud, a local police commander. You can read this article in its entirety over on the Pan-African Newswire. Also, uh, there was a rally uh, in the capital of Mogadishu where uh, the chant was enough was enough. For for 13 years, extremists with the al-Qaeda's East Africa affiliate had controlled Mahmoud Addo's village in central Somalia, imposing harsh ideology and arresting local teachers and traditional leaders. Then word came from Somali forces in a surprising national offensive had expelled the fighters from nearby villages. A small group of residents sneaked out one night in August to meet with Somali troop commanders and invited them into their village, Rajel. The 80-year-old Ado uh, was among those taking up arms, joining a local militia fighting alongside the Somali forces in rural battles with uh, the battered guns. In what is being called total war by the government of President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, that was elected just in May, Ado and others across the Horn of African nation are being encouraged to stand up to the al-Shabaab extremists who have long embedded Somalian society, exploiting clan divisions and extorting millions of dollars a year from businesses and farmers in their quest to impose a Islamic caliphate. On Thursday, Somalia's government announced a people's uprising as it seeks to pressure al-Shabaab from all angles, including the financial ones. And news in other parts uh, of uh, the continent, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a suspected extremist attack at a church in eastern Congo killed at least 10 people and wounded more than three dozen, according to the country's military. A group linked to the Islamic extremists was suspected of being responsible for a bomb that went off in the Pentecostal church in the North Kivu province town of Kasindi. A military spokesperson, Anthony Ma Rushai, told uh, the international press a Kenyan national found that the scene was detained. Ma Rushai said uh, Congo's government urged people to avoid crowds and be vigilant as it conducted an investigation, the Minister of Communication tweeted. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the United States, a Mississippi environmental regulator has denied claims that the state agency he leads discriminated against the capital city of Jackson in its distribution of federal funds for wastewater treatment. In a recently unearthed letter to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, 
Mississippi Department of Environmental Equality Executive Director Christopher Wells wrote that the NAACP had, quote, failed to allege a single fact to support, unquote, its argument that the agency discriminated against Jackson. He said he believed the ongoing civil rights investigation into the matter was politically motivated. Jackson received a loan for every completed application it submitted, Wells wrote, and because the amount of the loan is based on the cost of the project, no loans were reduced for any reason that could be considered discriminatory. Disruptions to Jackson's water service have ailed the city for years, and its system nearly collapsed in late August after heavy rainfall exacerbated problems at the city's main water treatment plant. Most of Jackson's lost running water for several days, and people had to wait in line for water to drink, cook, bathe, and flush toilets. And uh, finally, in uh, this news segment, um, this uh, weekend represents the commemoration in the United States of the 94th uh, birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, where he was assassinated. A new photography exhibit, a blood drive, and food donations are among the planned highlights of the National Civil Rights Museum's celebration of the holiday honoring uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Tennessee. Each year, the Memphis-based museum hosts events to remember King, the civil rights leader who was fatally shot here on April the 4th of 1968. The museum is located on the site of Old Lorraine Motel, where King was shot while standing on a balcony in the city of Detroit. That will be the 20th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rally in March. It will be held at the St. Matthew, St. Joseph's Episcopal Church uh, tomorrow, January 16th uh, at noon. The church is located at 8850 Woodward Avenue at Holbrook. And there will be a rally, uh, then later a march and a community meal. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at Pan African News blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, Sunday, January 15th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at Blog Talk Radio. Dot com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. We got a half 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice and music of the legendary uh, Curtis Mayfield with the track and title, We Gotta Have Peace. And uh, this weekend, of course, is the 94th uh, birthday of uh, the martyr Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was born on this day, January 15th of 1929. And, of course, towards the end of uh, Dr. King's life, he came out forthrightly against uh, the U.S. imperialist war in Southeast Asia, opposing uh, U.S. occupation of Vietnam, calling for an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam. Many people, of course, uh, recognize uh, and acknowledge uh, now, many years later, the speech delivered on April 4th of 1967, uh, which was one year to the day of his assassination, the speech that was delivered at Riverside Church in New York. However, uh, there were other uh, actions leading up to the April 4th, 1967 speech. Uh, His opposition to the war in Vietnam was not... um, limited to one speech uh, during the uh, holiday week uh, in 1967, 66, Dr. King published a series of, uh, in many publications of a letter opposing uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam. This speech that we're about to hear now was delivered on February 25th of 1967 in Los Angeles, California uh, to a audience Uh, for the Nation magazine. And, of course, the speech was delivered uh, a month and a half uh, prior to the Riverside Church speech. There was also the participation on March 25th of 1967 in Chicago at an anti-war march as well. Then, of course, on April 15th of 1967, the march against the war in Vietnam on the United Nations in New York, which Dr. King uh, was one of the leading figures in that demonstration, along with uh, Stokely Carmichael, the then chairperson of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Let's listen to uh, the casualties of the Vietnam War. Mr. Stora, Mr. McWilliams, other distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this afternoon and to have the privilege of being a part of this very significant conference. And in the very beginning, I want to express my deep personal appreciation uh, to my friend Robert Vaughn for these very kind and gracious words of introduction. It's always good to be in California and to renew old friendships and fellowships, and I'm happy to share the platform with uh, friends that I've known all along. I see Jack Tenner is here with us today, and he's been a great supporter of our work in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You know, he's a great fundraiser, and one day we were having, or one evening rather, we were having 
a fundraising meeting at the home of Bert Lancaster, and when he got to making the appeal, my associate Ralph Abernathy said, you sound like a good Baptist preacher. <laughs> so whenever he talks to you about money, you better hold your pocketbook very closely. <laughs> but we're happy to be here with all of these friends. And, of course, whenever I come to California particularly when I take the flight out of New York or Chicago, I'm always happy to get on the ground because the flight over the Rockies, you know, is usually very turbulent. And after a turbulent flight, I am always happy to land. I don't want to give anybody here the impression that I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> Let me say briefly how happy I am to be here under the auspices of Nation magazine. Uh, through its journalistic integrity and its genuine liberalism, uh, certainly this magazine has carved for itself an imperishable niche in the annals of uh, journalistic history in our nation. And I know those of us who are readers and subscribers of Nation magazine are deeply indebted to it for all that it has done to make the discussion of the vital issues of our day and our age a reality. I think we can all say I'm sure Nation would appreciate that applause you're about to give. <laughs> and certainly in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, that is no greater need than for sober thinking, healthy debate, creative dissent and enlightened discussion. And I think this is why this particular symposium is so important. And so this afternoon I would like to speak to you candidly and I hope forthrightly about our present involvement in Vietnam. And I have chosen as a subject from which to speak the casualties of the war in Vietnam. We are certainly all aware of the nightmarish physical casualties of this war. We see them in our living rooms and all of their tragic dimensions on television screens. And we read about them on our subway and bus rides in daily newspaper accounts. We see the rice fields of a small Asian country uh, being trampled at will and burned at whim. We see grief-stricken mothers with crying babies clutched tightly in their arms as they watched their little huts burst forth into flames. We see the fields and valleys of battle being painted with humankind's blood. 
we see the broken bodies left prostrate in countless fields. Most tragic of all is the casualty list among children. It is estimated that some one million Vietnamese children have been casualties of this brutal war, a war in which children are incinerated by napalm, in which Amer American soldiers die in mounting numbers, while other American soldiers, according to press accounts, in unrestrained hatred shoot the wounded enemy as they lie on the ground it is a war that mutilates the conscience. These casualties are enough to cause all men to rise up with righteous indignation and oppose the very nature of this evil war. But the physical casualties of the war in Vietnam are not alone the catastrophes the casualties of principles and values are equally disastrous and injurious. If the casualties of principle are not healed, the phys physical casualties will continue to mount. One of the first casualties of the war in Vietnam was the charter of the United Nations in taking armed action against the Viet, uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam, the United States clearly violated the UN Charter, which provides in Chapter 1, Article 2, that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And in Chapter 7, it states that the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or shall decide what measures shall be taken to maintain or restore international peace and security. It is very obvious that our government blatantly violated its obligation under the Charter of the UN to submit to the Security Council its charge of aggression against North Vietnam. Instead, we unilaterally launched an all-out war on Asian soil. In the process, we have undermined the purpose of the UN and caused its effectiveness at many points to atrophy. We have also placed our nation in the position of being morally and politically isolated. Even the long-standing allies of America have adamantly refused to join our government in this ugly war. As Americans and lovers of democracy, we should carefully ponder the consequence of our nation's declining moral status in the world. The second casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of self-determination. By entering a war that is little more than a domestic civil war, America has ended up supporting a new form of colonialism covered up by certain niceties of complexity. Whether we realize it or not, 
Our participation in the war in Vietnam is an ominous expression of our lack of sympathy for the oppressed, our paranoid anti-communism, our failure to feel the ache and anguish of the have-nots. It reveals our willingness to continue participation in neo-colonialist adventures. A brief look at the background and history of this war reveals with brutal clarity the ugliness of our policy. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after the combined French and Japanese occupation and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by the now well-known Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. President Truman felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and the government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese people have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action. But we did not. We encourage them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. During this period, United States governmental officials began to brainwash the American public. John Foster Dulles assiduously sought to prove that Indochina was essential to our security against the Chinese communist peril. When a negotiated settlement of the war was reached in 1954 through the Geneva Accord, it was done against our will. After doing all that we could to sabotage the planning for the Geneva Accord, we finally refused to sign it. Soon after this, we helped install Premier Diem. We supported him in his betrayal of the Geneva Accord Accord and his refusal to have the promised 1956 election. We watched with approval as he engaged in ruthless and bloody persecution of all opposition forces. When Diem's infamous actions finally led to the formation of the National Liberation Front, the American public was duped into believing that the civil rebellion was being waged by puppets from Hanoi. As Douglas Pike wrote, and hard Americans helplessly watched
diem tear apart the fabric of Vietnamese society more effectively than the communists had ever been able to do, it was the most efficient act of his entire career. Since Diem's death, we have actively supported another dozen military dictatorships, all in the name of fighting for freedom. When it became evident that these regimes could not defeat the Viet Cong, we began steadily to increase our forces, calling them military advisors rather than soldiers. Today we are fighting an all-out war, undeclared by Congress. We have well over 300,000 American servicemen fighting in that benighted and unhappy country. American planes are bombing the territory of another country. And we are committing atrocities equal to any perpetrated by the Viet Cong. This is the third largest war in American history. All of this reveals that we are in an untenable position, morally and politically. We are left standing before the world glutted by our own barbarity. We are engaged in a war that seeks to turn the clock of history back and perpetuate white colonialism. And the greatest irony and tragedy of it all is that our nation, which initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world, is now cast in the mold of being an arch anti-revolutionary. A third casualty of the war in Vietnam is a great society. This confused war has played havoc with our domestic destinies. Despite feeble protestations to the contrary, the promises of the great society have been shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam. The pursuit of this widened war has narrowed domestic welfare programs, making the poor, white and Negro, bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. And while the anti-poverty program is cautiously initiated, zealously supervised, and evaluated for immediate results. Billions are liberal, liberally expended for this ill-considered war. The recently revealed misestimate of the war budget amounts to $10 billion for a single year. This error alone is more than five times the amount committed to anti-poverty programs. The security we profess to seek in foreign adventures, we will lose in our decaying cities. The bombs in Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. If we reversed investments and gave the armed forces the anti-poverty budget, the generals could be forgiven if they walked off the battlefield in disgust. Poverty, <laughs> poverty, urban problems, and social progress generally are ignored when the guns of war become a national obsession. When it is not our security that is at stake, but questionable and vague commitments to reactionary regimes, values disintegrate into foolish and adolescent slogans. 
it is estimated that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill, while we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. We have escalated the war in Vietnam and de-escalated the skirmish against poverty. It challenges the imagination to contemplate what lives we could transform if we were to cease killing. At this moment in history, it is irrefutable that our world prestige is pathetically frail. Our war policy excites pronounced contempt and aversion virtually everywhere even when some national governments for reasons of economic and diplomatic interest do not condemn us their people in surprising measure have made clear they do not share the official policy we are isolated in our false values in a world demanding social and economic justice we must undergo a vigorous reordering of our national priorities a fourth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the humility of our nation. Through rugged determination, scientific and technological progress and dazzling achievements, America has become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. We have built machines that think and instruments appear into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We have built gargantuan bridges to span the seas and gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Through our airplanes and spaceships, we have dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. And through our submarines, we have penetrated oceanic depths. This year, our national gross product will reach the astounding figure of $780 billion. All of this is a staggering picture of our great power. But honesty impels me to admit that our power has often made us arrogant as a nation. We feel that our money can do anything. We arrogantly feel that we have everything to teach other nations and nothing to learn from them. We often arrogantly feel that we have some divine messianic mission to police the whole world. We are arrogant in not allowing young nations to go through the same growing pains, turbulence, and revolution that characterized our history. We are arrogant in our contention that we have some sacred mission to protect people from totalitarian rule while we make little use of our power to end the evils of South Africa and Rhodesia, and while we in fact support dictatorships with guns and money under the guise of fighting communism. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for war in Vietnam. And these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. 
We arm Negro soldiers to kill on foreign battlefields, but offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. Of all the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad, he has twice that of whites. And thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and he has half the income of whites. When we turn to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. There were twice as many Negroes in combat in Vietnam at the beginning of 1967, and twice as many died in action in proportion to their numbers in the population as whites. All of this reveals that our nation has not yet used its vast resources of power to end the long night of poverty, racism, and man's inhumanity to man. Enlarged power means enlarged peril. If that is not concomitant growth of the soul, genuine power is the right use of strength. If our nation's strength is not used responsibly and with restraint, it will be following Lord Acton's dictum, power that tends to corrupt, and power that corrupts an absolute power that corrupts absolutely. Our arrogance can be our doom. It can bring the curtains down on our national drama. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. We are challenged in these turbulent days use our power to speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A fifth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of dissent. An ugly, repressive sentiment to silence peace seekers depicts advocates of immediate negotiation under terms of the Geneva Agreement and persons who call for the cessation of bombings in the North as quasi-traitors, fools or venal enemies of our soldiers and institutions, free speech and the privilege of dissent and discussion of rights being shot down by bombers in Vietnam. When those who stand for peace are so vilified, it is time to consider where we are going and whether free speech has not become one of the major casualties of the war. Curtailment of free speech is rationalized on grounds that a more compelling American tradition forbids criticism of the government when the nation is at war. More than a century ago, when we were in a declared state of war with Mexico, a first-term congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln stood in the halls of Congress and fearlessly denounced that war. Congressman Abraham Lincoln of Illinois had not heard of this tradition. Uh, he was not inclined to respect it, nor had Thoreau and Emerson and many other philosophers who shaped our democratic principles. Nothing can be more destructive of our fundamental democratic traditions than the vicious effort 
to silence dissenters. A sixth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the prospects of mankind's survival. This war has created the climate for greater armament and further expansion of destructive nuclear power. One of the most persistent ambiguities that we face is that everybody talks about peace as a goal. However, it does not take sharpest-eyed sophistication to discern that while everybody talks about peace, peace has become practically nobody's business among the power wielders. Call the role of those who sing the glad tidings of peace, and one's ears will be surprised by the responding sounds. The heads of all of the nations issue clarion calls for peace, yet these destiny determiners come accompanied by a band and a brigade of national choristers, each bearing unsheathed swords rather than olive branches. The stages of history are replete with the chants and choruses of the conquerors of old who came killing in pursuit of peace. Alexander, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon were akin in thus seeking a peaceful world a world fashioned after their selfish conceptions of an ideal existence. Each sought a world at peace which would personify their egotistic dream. Even within the lifespan of most of us, another megalomaniac strode across the stage of history. He sent his troops blazing across Europe, bringing havoc and holocaust in his wake. That is grave irony in the fact that Hitler could come forth following the nakedly aggressive expansionist theories he revealed in Mein Kampf and do it all in the name of peace. So when I see in this day the leaders of nations similarly talking peace while preparing for war, I take frightful pause. When I see our country today intervening in what is basically a civil war, destroying hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese children and adults with napalm, and sending home half-men mutilated mentally and physically. When I see the recalcitrant unwillingness of our government to create the atmosphere for a negotiated settlement of this awful conflict by halting bombings in the north and agreeing to talk with the Viet Cong, and all this in the name of pursuing the goal of peace, I tremble for our world. I do so not only from dire recall of the nightmares wreaked in the wars of yesterday, but also from dreadful realization of today's possible nuclear destructiveness and tomorrow's even more damnable prospects. The past is prophetic in that it asserts loudly that wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. One day we must come to see that peace is not merely the distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. How much longer must we play? <laughs> How much longer must we play at deadly war games? 
Before we heed the plaintive pleas of the unnumbered dead and maimed of past wars, why can't we at long last grow up and take off our blindfolds, chart new courses, put our hands to the rudder and set sail for the distant destination, the port city of peace? President John F. Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. How true this is, wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by pre preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the destructive power of modern weapons eliminates even the possibility that war may serve as a negative good. If we assume that life is worth living and that man has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. In a day when vehicles hurtled throughout a space and guided ballistic missiles carve highways of death through the stratosphere, no nation can claim victory in war. A so-called limited war will leave little more than a calamitous legacy of human suffering, political turmoil, and spiritual disillusionment. A world war, God forbid, will leave only smoldering ashes as a mute testimony of a human race whose folly led inexorably to ultimate death. So if modern man continues to flirt unhesitatingly with war, he will transform his earthly habitat into an inferno such as even the mind of Dante could not imagine. I do not wish to minimize the complexity of the problems that need to be faced in achieving disarmament and peace, but I think it is a fact that we shall not have the will, the courage, and the insight to deal with such matters unless in this field we are prepared to undergo a spiritual and a mental reevaluation a change of focus which will enable us to see that the things which seem most real and powerful are indeed now unreal and have come under the sentence of death. We need to make a supreme effort to generate the readiness, indeed the eagerness, to enter into the w new world which is now possible. We will not build a peaceful world by following a negative path, it is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. That is a fascinating little story that is preserved for us in Greek literature about Ulysses and the sirens. The sirens had the ability to sing so sweetly the sailors could not resist steering toward their island. Many ships were lured upon the rocks, and men forgot home, duty, and honor as they flung themselves into the sea to be embraced by the arms that drew them down to death. Ulysses, determined not to be lured by the sirens, first decided to tie himself tightly to the mast of his boat, and his crew stuffed their ears with wax, but finally he and his crew learned a better way to save themselves. They took on board the beautiful singer Orpheus, whose melodies were sweeter than the music of the sirens. 
When Orpheus sang, who bothered to listen to the sirens? So we must fix our vision not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but upon the positive affirmation of peace. We must see that peace represents a sweeter music, a cosmic melody that is far superior to the discords of war. Somehow we must transform the dynamics of the world power struggle from the negative nuclear arms race, which no one can win, to a positive contest to harness man's creative genius for the purpose of making peace and prosperity a reality for all of the nations of the world. In short, we must shift from the arms race into a peace race if we have the will and determination to mount such a peace offensive. We will unlock hitherto tightly sealed doors of hope and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against it not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I am disappointed with America. There can be no great disappointment where there is not great love. I am disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism, we are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. Jesus once told a parable of a young man who left home and wandered into a far country when adventure after adventure and sensation after sensation he sought life, but he never found it. He found only frustration and bewilderment. The further he moved from his father's house, the closer he came to the house of despair. The more he did what he liked, the less he liked what he did. After the boy had wasted all the famine developed in the land, and he ended up seeking food in a pig's trough. But the story does not end there. It goes on to say that in this state of disillusionment, blinding frustration and homesickness, the boy came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The prodigal son was not himself when he left the father's house or when he dreamed that pleasure was the end of life. Only when he made up his mind to go home and be a son again did he really come to himself. The parable ends with the, the boy returning home to find the loving father waiting with outstretched arms and a heart filled with unutterable joy. This is an analogy of what America confronts today. Like all human analogies, it is imperfect, but it does suggest some parallels worth considering. America has strayed to the far country of racism and militarism. The home that all too many Americans left was solidly structured idealistically. Its pillars were soundly grounded in the insights of our Judeo-Christian heritage. All men are made in the image of God, 
All men are brothers, all men are created equal. Every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred nor, nor derived from the state. They are God-given. Out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away. And this unnatural excursion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It has driven wisdom from her sacred throne. And this long and callous sojourn in the far country of racism and militarism has brought a moral and spiritual famine to the nation. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to return to her true home of brotherhood and peaceful pursuits. We cannot remain silent as our nation engages in one of history's most cruel and senseless wars. America must continue to have, during these days of human travail, a company of creative dissenters. We need them because the thunder of their fearless voices will be the only sound stronger than the blast of bombs and the clamor of war hysteria. Those of us who love peace must organize effectively as the war hawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. We must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. We must demonstrate, teach, and preach until the very foundations of our nation are shaken. We must work unceasingly to lift this nation that we love to a higher destiny, to a new plateau of compassion, to, more, no, to a more noble expression of humaneness. I have tried to be honest today. To be honest is to confront the truth. To be honest is to realize that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience and moments of comfort, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. However unpleasant and inconvenient the truth may be, I believe we must expose and face it if we are to achieve a better quality of American life. Just the other day, the distinguished American historian Henry Steele Cominger told the Senate committee, and I quote, Justice Holmes used to say that the first lesson a judge had to learn was that he was not God. We do tend, perhaps more than other nations, to transfer our wars into crusades. Our current involvement in Vietnam is cast increasingly into a moral mold it is my feeling that we do not have the resources, material, intellectual, or moral, to be at once an American power, a European power, and an Asian power. I agree with Mr. Cummins, and I would suggest that that is another kind of power that America can and should be. It is a moral power, a power harnessed to the service of peace and human beings, not in inhuman power and least against defenseless people. All of the world knows that America is a great military power. We need not be diligent in seeking to prove it. We must now show the world our moral power. 
That is an element of urgency in our redirecting American power. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There's such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood. It ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant in every plea. It rushes on over the bleached bones and cluttered cluttered wreckage of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. History will record the choice we make it is still not too late to make the proper choice. If we to de decide to become a moral power, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of this world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we make the wise decision, we will be able to transform our pending national and cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. This will be a glorious day. If we will only do it, we will speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, Easterners and Westerners, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Welcome back. And uh, that was the classic uh, speech uh, from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on uh, his opposition uh, to uh, the Vietnam War. That speech was delivered on February 25th of 1967 in uh, Beverly Hills, uh, California, at a day-long conference uh, dealing with the war in Vietnam. Uh, and, of course, uh, was sponsored by The Nation magazine. Now, this address uh, was delivered, as we mentioned earlier, a month and a half before the Riverside Church speech uh, was delivered on April 4th, 1967, in New York City. And uh, April 4th, 1968, uh, represented the anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. King, uh, who was assassinated in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, on April 4th of 1968. Uh, many of us feel, of course, at the aegis of uh, the ruling class in the United States and the United States government. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, today, uh, Sunday, January 15th, 2023. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to our program. And if you'd like to have access to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the 
Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And the programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links in the email, sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, the programs can also be shared by copying and pasting links on other blogs and websites and uh, as well as uh, through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of John Coltrane uh, from recordings uh, laid down in 1958. This is entitled Dial Africa, and uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe. Signing off and have a beautiful MLK day and a beautiful week.
Thank you. 